very thankful for opportunities to preach. Uh, senior pastors away training pastors this, uh, this weekend and this week. And last week he started us in on a series we're calling Financial Fitness. Financial Fitness. And you might wonder, well, how do these two words go together? How does this term work, financial fitness? Well, this is basically it. We all know that there are disciplines, there are principles, there are routines to keeping our bodies fit. They're just common sense principles to keeping our bodies fit, to stay physically fit. I can't eat two scoops of Blue Bunny peanut butter panic ice cream every night before I go to bed and expect to lose weight. It doesn't work. I tried it. It's not going to happen. I can't go to the gym one time, just one time, and then go, hey, where are my abs? What's going on here? Why isn't this working? We just know there's common sense principles. There's, there's things that take more time than others. There's just laws that we've discovered in keeping our bodies fit. There are also disciplines, routines, principles, laws to keeping our finances fit. And to sum up last week's message, and really the, the big idea of this whole series, Financial Fitness, uh, is this one thing, and I want you to write this in at the top of your outline, money is spiritual. Money is spiritual. You know, we, we tend to think, and we think that money is just math. Money's just math. But when we make financial decisions, we are also making spiritual decisions. That's why we're talking about money in church. Because the financial decisions we make will echo into eternity. They affect our spirit. They affect the way we relate to God, how available we are to God. They affect our relationship with our family. You know, for instance, when we just wash our hands of the finances and we just put the expectation on the spouse that they're going to take care of all the finances, they're going to do everything, we don't make it a team effort, we're not only making a financial decision, we're not only making a mathematic decision, we're making a spiritual decision. Likewise, if, we're to push, if we were to push our spouse out, just take charge, take control, we don't let their voice be heard, we don't let it become a team effort with them, we're not just making a financial decision, we're making a spiritual decision. You know, we could choose, we could decide not to give back to God, and that might look really good on paper, but we're making a poor spiritual decision. You know, when we buy something that we don't have money for yet, like a car or clothing or furniture or electronics, we can make the mathematic argument that it's helping our credit score or whatever, but we're missing out on the larger picture that's being taken, that money is spiritual and that has spiritual implications. So since money is spiritual, spiritual disciplines, spiritual principles are going to also apply to money. And today we're looking at one of them. We're looking at the law of contentment. Contentment is the most powerful financial principle of all. Ironically, contentment is the most powerful wealth-building tool of all. If we don't learn contentment, if we don't learn how to be content, then mastering every other financial tool, like a budget, investing, saving, debt reduction, every other tool, every other principle, it's not going to mean a thing. You know, sure, we could do a budget, but as soon as we want something that's more than what the budget allocated for, then the budget doesn't work anymore. You know, without contentment, no amount of savings is enough. Without contentment, we can't invest wisely. Without contentment, we can't help others. 
until we learn the principle of contentment, we will always be frustrated with money. And this is not only a problem for individuals. If you've noticed, this is a problem for our entire nation. You know, for Time Magazine did an article on this and explains that for every $1,000 that Americans make, we put $1,300 on our credit cards. I mean, it is easy to figure out. We don't have to look very long or very far to understand why we are stressed out and why our spirits are broken. Proverbs 14.30 says, It's healthy to be content, but envy will eat you up. He's saying that it's physically good, not only financially good, but physically good. It's healthy to be content, to live a contented life. Another translation of this verse reads, A heart at peace gives life to the body. It's invigorating. It's good for your health. It's good for our spirit to be at peace. It says, Envy This desire to always have more, it will eat us alive. Another verse in Ecclesiastes. uh, These two books that we're looking at today, by the way, were written by a man named Solomon. And Solomon, God says, is the wisest man who ever lived. He's also the, he was the wealthiest man in the world when he wrote these two books with the principles of money management in them. Ecclesiastes 6.9 says, It's better to be satisfied with what you have than always to be wanting something else. And that's the principle, that's the law of contentment. That's our main point for today. I'd love for you to memorize that verse and carry it with you. It's better to be satisfied with what you have than to always be wanting something else. And we learn from the Bible that there are five damaging effects or or five side effects, if you will, from always wanting more. Write these in. The, The first effort but the first effect in always wanting more is that wanting more brings more fatigue. We're going to be more tired. If you're always wanting more, you're always working harder and you're tired all the time. Being tired all the time is a symptom of your trying to do too much. The race to get more drives us to overwork. Most people give up their health in the first half of their life in order to get money. And in the second half of their life, they give up all their money trying to get their health back. Be wise. Figure that out in advance. Do not, be, do not wear yourself out to be rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Number two, not, not only does wanting more bring more fatigue, it brings more expenses. It always costs more to have more. It, it brings greater expense. If the grass is greener on the other side, so is the water bill. Ecclesiastes 5.11. The more you have, the more people will come to help you spend it. The more we have, the more that's taxed. The more we have to maintain, the more money you have, the more money you spend. He goes on. So so what's the advantage of wealth except to watch it run through your fingers? You know, we think that we don't make enough. But the truth is we probably want too much. God has said, I shall supply all your needs. He has not said, I will supply all your greeds. God is not obligated to give just anything that we want. So it brings more fatigue, brings more expenses, and number three, it brings more anxiety. The more we have, the more we have to worry about. If you don't have it, you don't worry about it. I've got to be honest with you. I never worry about getting cracks in my bass boat. I just never worry about that. You know why? Because I don't have a bass boat. I don't have a bass boat. 
I do worry about sometimes getting cracks in my ice cream cone. Now, that's a pain. That's bad. But anyway, if you don't own something, you don't worry about it. You know, the fewer things you own, the fewer things you have to repair, the fewer things that you have to maintain, the fewer things you have to insure, the fewer things you have to pay taxes on, all these other things. You know, nowadays we have so many things, we can't even keep them all in our house. We have to rent a place to store things. What's the logic of that one? We're paying rent on stuff that we never even see and don't ever use. So it brings more anxiety. The more you have, the more you worry about it. Ecclesiastes 5, a working man can get a good night's sleep. But the rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. So if you have more fatigue, plus more expenses, plus more anxiety, you know what that equals? More conflict. More conflict without contentment. You're going to have more conflict in your home. Because when you're tired, and you have more expenses, and you're more anxious, you get in more fights. You have more conflict. Proverbs 15, a greedy man brings trouble to his family. We know that today the number one cause of divorce is financial tension. Every study shows this. It's now, till debt do us part. 1 Timothy 6, 9. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin. Pretty heavy. Now, this is not talking about, I want to be very clear here, this is not talking about legitimate wealth building. That's not what he's talking about here. This is talking about debt. This is talking about financial ruin. This is talking about destruction. Why? Because when you long to be rich, when you yearn to be rich, you become a sucker. You're a sucker for get-rich schemes. If you are contented, you don't fall prey to get rich schemes. Nobody can scam you. You know, you're not going to take risky things because you're contented. You're fine. People who are discontent are always looking for a way to make a fast buck. They're looking for a fast solution. And the Bible shows us over and over again, we'll see this especially when we get in this series to investments, to not ever, ever get involved in get-rich schemes. Have you ever heard Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing? His number one rule of investing. It's very simple. He says, never lose the money you've already earned. Never lose the money you've already earned. Yet people lose it all the time in interest payments or an attempt to get rich quick. Lauren and I have never lost a penny to get rich schemes. We've never lost a penny to the lottery. We've done a lot of other stupid things with money but this isn't one of them. Why? Because, I mean, for one, they just don't work. Get-rich schemes don't work. The lottery doesn't work. But even if it did, even if it did, even if I did win the lottery, I don't want that to be a part of my legacy. I don't want my kids someday to assume that they're provided for because of chance, because of some luck, because of some lucky encounter. I want them to know that work ethic God's principles and diligence paid off. I want them to know God's way really does work. A contented person is just not lured by the lottery. And number five, wanting more brings more dissatisfaction. We think that having more is going to make me happier. And it's true. You can buy happiness for a short term, 
but the feelings don't last. This is true with everything you buy. You go out and buy a piece of art, and you love that piece of art, and you hang it on the wall, and it brings you happiness. But after a while, you're not happy anymore. Why? Because, write this down, people change and things don't. People change and things don't. Things don't change, so we get bored with them. We've got to redecorate. We've got to remodel. We have to refurbish. We've got to rearrange. We have to replace. We're addicted to upgrades. You get a new outfit, and the first time you put it on, man, you are feeling good, and you are looking good. But then after about four times, you wear that shirt or you wear that dress, you don't feel so good anymore. Why? Because you changed, and the thing didn't. People change and things don't. Ecclesiastes 5.10, if you love money, remember last week we talked about how money is a tool. You use money and you love people. If you start loving money, you're going to start to use people. If you love money, you will never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. The Living Bible says, says it simply, it's foolish to think that wealth brings happiness. So let me ask everyone in here a question. How many of you would say, in 2013, I would like to live a life of less fatigue, less expenses, less anxiety, less conflict, and less dissatisfaction? Who could say, I want in on some of that? That sounds nice. We must learn the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. Philippians 4.12, I love this. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content whether living in plenty or in want. Notice first that it's a secret. So I'm going to whisper the rest of the sermon because it's a secret. Notice it's something you have to learn. It's something that we've got to get in on. It's not something we naturally know. In fact, we're born and we just have, we're naturally discontented. We don't come into the world naturally content. By nature, I'm a discontented person. And the Bible shows us, gives us the secret of how to be content. Shows us four keys to the law of contentment. Flip your outline over. Number one, stop comparing myself to others. Second Corinthians, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves. It's not wise. The problem is, we naturally do it. It's America's favorite indoor sport. We walk walk into somebody's house, and the first thing we do is start making comparisons. Oh, I like that floor. Oh, I love that drapery. Wow, what a television. We're just naturally comparing all the time. We walk up to somebody and think, oh, I like the way she did her hair. Mine looks bad today. Why aren't my kids like that? I wish I had that job. Look at that car. We're constantly comparing. And... It's what's keeping us frustrated. We must, learn, we must learn to admire without having to acquire. That's the principle of contentment. I must learn to admire without having to acquire. This is one of the great principles that Americans just don't understand. I don't have to own it in order to enjoy it. You know, we do this. A lot of times we think, I like to jet ski. So I go out and I buy a pair of jet skis and then they sit in my garage 90% of the time. It'd be better off just to rent them the three times I'm going to use them and then I have less expense, I don't have to worry, I don't have upkeep, I don't have all those other things. 
You don't have to own it in order to enjoy it. Now, Exodus 20, 17 says, talking about comparing, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting means the uncontrolled desire to acquire. You know, when I see something somebody else has, and I have to get it too, that's called coveting. Coveting is a sin. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's actually right up there with don't murder. It's that important to God. He says, I don't, I don't want you coveting anything. And the, the word covet in Hebrew in the Old Testament literally means to pant after. In the Greek, it means to grasp so tightly that you could never let go. And I got to tell you, it, if God ever gives me something and he tells me to give it away, but I just can't give it away, I don't own it, it owns me. I become possessed by my possessions. Now, I want to make this really clear. I want to stick on this, stay on this a minute and make this really clear. God is not saying that we should never desire anything. That's not what he's saying. In fact, that's not even Christianity. That, that's Buddhism. Do you know what Buddhism is? The basis of Buddhism is all suffering is the result of desire. That all pain is the result of desire. The whole goal of Buddhism is to get rid of all your desires and then you'll never have any more pain. That's the philosophy of Buddha. And if you can reach that state where you have absolutely no desires at all, then you'll have no pain and you'll have no suffering. And that state of no desire is called nirvana. We think sometimes nirvana is pleasure or nirvana is heaven. Nirvana means nothing. (laughs) That's what it means. It means nothingness. It means a state of nothingness, a state where I have zero desires so nothing can hurt me. Buddhism says, when I get to that state of zero desires, I have entered into nothingness and I will no longer suffer. That's just nonsense. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what everything in human behavior teaches us. Everything ever accomplished in life is done with human desire. Every great city is built because someone desired to build a great city. Every great nation is built because someone desired to build a great nation. Everybody gets married because they desire to get married. Everybody makes money because they desire to provide. Desires are not wrong. In fact, your desires can come from God. You can't, you can't become more Christ-like without desiring to become more like Christ. You can't do it. So he's not saying desire altogether is bad. He's saying coveting is bad, which is I've got to have more. I've got to have more, 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 and more is what you've got instead of what I've got. Number two, the second key to contentment is to enjoy what I have. Enjoy what I have. Now, I've preached on contentment before, and a lot of people's big takeaway was, well, I guess I'm always going to have second-rate junk. That's like saying, well, since I can't have it how I want it, when I want it, then I'm never going to have it. No, God wants you to enjoy your life. It's just you have to measure at what cost. Am I going to pay interest on this thing to enjoy it? No. So you don't have to always have second-rate junk. But you might not be able to get it when you want it, how you want it. But God wants you to enjoy your life. He really does. Life was meant to be enjoyed, 
not merely endured. A lot of people think God is some cosmic killjoy, that God wants you to frown through life, never be happy, never laugh, never have any fun, never enjoy. I got to tell you, absolutely not. God created it all for our enjoyment and his ultimate glory. God wants you to have fun. He wants you to enjoy life. You know, God, God created taste buds, and then he created barbecue. How about that? God created eardrums, and then he gave us music. I mean, there's really no single purpose for music except enjoyment. If you believe in evolution, you have no explanation for music because music is not essential for survival. The only reason music was created is purely for enjoyment and God's glory. You know, God gave us skin that can feel and touch and experience pleasure. God gave us eyes that can see the world in color. He could have made it all in black and white, but he gives us colorful sunrises and sunsets so we could enjoy, so we could take part in his glory. The fact is, God enjoys watching you enjoy what he's given you. Every parent understands this, that they enjoy giving something to their kids and enjoying their child enjoy it. The Bible even says in Timothy, everything on earth was given for our enjoyment. That's the kind of God we have that we serve. It's for our enjoyment. But here's the problem. We're so busy getting more that we don't enjoy what we've got. We start worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Ecclesiastes 5 says, if God gives a man wealth and property, he should be grateful and enjoy what he has. It is a gift from God. Now, if money is just math, then we enjoy dealing with money about as much as we enjoy college algebra. But if money is spiritual, then we can have the joy of God enter into our finances. You know, one of the benefits of so many of us going on peace mission trips is is we get to see how the rest of the world lives, and that makes us a whole lot more grateful. We start to pay attention to what we do have. And we need to open our eyes. We need to appreciate what God has given us. You know what I'm grateful for? You know what I, I really enjoy? I enjoy washing my hands. I love it. I, I, was in, in, I was in India and in the Philippines last October, and I was amazed that very rarely, never in a public place, could I get all three elements that it takes to wash my hands. I couldn't get all three things at, at once to wash my hands. I couldn't get water, soap, and a towel. I needed water, soap, and a towel to wash my hands, and I could never get all three. I would get soap and a towel, but no water. Or I would get soap and water, and I couldn't dry my hands. And everyone's just walking around, waving their hands around. But here, I can get soap, water, and a towel, and the water will even get hot. You need to think about these things and start being thankful. You need to ask yourself, what do do I already have that I am not enjoying? What am I not enjoying right now? You know, most of us get into when and then thinking. When and then. When this happens, then I'll be happy. When I get a boyfriend, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When we have kids, then I'll be happy. When the kids go off to school, then I'll be happy. When I get married again, then I'll be happy. And on and on and on. I got to tell you, if you are not happy now, you're not going to be happy later. 
Happiness has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with your attitude, and you can change your attitude. You know, if you're not happy living on the salary you are now, you're just not going to be happy with more later. This article is found in Forbes. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but I highlighted some parts. It's called, Why Winning the Powerable Won't Make You Happy. The study was published uh, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Researchers, researchers interviewed Illinois state lottery winners and compared them with non-winners and with people who had suffered a terrible accident that had left them paraplegic or quadriplegic. Each group answered a series of questions aimed at measuring their happiness level. The study found that the overall happiness levels of lottery winners spiked when they won but returned to pre-winning levels just after a few months. In terms of overall happiness, the lottery winners were not significantly happier than the non-winners. Then the accident victims were slightly less happy, but not by much. The study showed that most people have a set level of happiness, and even after life-changing events, people tend to return to that set point. So you've got a guy over here who's kind of happy, and he wins the lottery, and he's really happy. But then after about six months, he just is about as happy as he was before winning the lottery. And then you have a guy over here who's kind of happy, and then he has a terrible accident, comes quadriplegic, he's very sad. But after about six months, he's about as happy as he was before the accident. This proves that Solomon was right. If we're going to be happy, if we're going to be content, Our happiness is going to have to be found in something other than acquiring or losing. 1 Timothy 6 says, Teach those who are rich in this world. Let me stop right there. I'm very excited to be the one to tell you this. You are rich. You're loaded. You're wealthy. If you have some change in your pocket or change in the tray in your car, you are among the wealthiest in the world. In fact, if you have a refrigerator, you're in the top 5% richest in the world. You are rich. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their, Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works, generous to those in need always being ready to share with others. Question, is it possible to be wealthy and not materialistic? Yes, of course, absolutely. It is possible to be wealthy and not be materialistic as long as you meet the preconditions in this verse. He says as long as you don't become proud, as long as you don't flaunt it, as long as you don't think that you're better than anybody else. You know, one of the signs of materialism, not the only sign, but one of the signs I'm materialistic is I get irritated when people start talking about tithing. When anyone starts talking about tithing, I get irritated. That is a sign I'm materialistic. Because the reason I don't tithe is there's just some things I'm not willing to do without. God doesn't need my money. One of the reasons he asks me to tithe is to teach me to break the grip of materialism in my life. Now, number three, the third way to learn the secret of contentment 
So remember, life is not about things. Now, I totally get that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. If you're new here, you're going to learn quickly that Rockbrook is a very generous people. We have learned that life is just not about things. Amen? We've realized none of it's going to last. Jesus said, watch out and guard yourselves from every kind of greed. Because your true life is not made up of things you own. No matter how rich you may be. The greatest thing, things in life are not things. I didn't bring anything into the world not taking anything out with me. And the stupidest use of my, of my life is to spend it building a pile. Life is not about acquisition. Life is not about achievement. Life is about relationship. Learning how to love God. Learning how to love other people. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. says, Oh God, I ask for two things from you before I die. First, help me to never tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and, and say, who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Either extreme can cause you to forget God. Wealth can make you prideful. Who, who needs God? And poverty can make you bitter. I need to remember that my life is not about things. And number four, I focus on what will last forever. I give my attention to permanent values. I build my life on eternal priorities. I focus on what will last forever. Even though you filled in the, the last line on your outline, stick with me here. Nothing you see is going to last forever. It's, it's all going to rust out, wear, and decay. This building will one day rust, wear, and fall over. Every tree you pass by on your way home someday is going to fall over and die. Everything we see is going to vanish. The Bible shows us that one day there will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. It's all going away. Only two things are going to last forever. Only two things. The Word of God and people. Only two things, the Word of God and people. The Word of God is going to last forever. God says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word will never pass away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God abides forever. This is why you need to read the Bible, because if it's true, it was true a thousand years ago, it'll be true a million years from today. Truth doesn't change. Truth does not change. We are, into, we are to invest our lives in people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we fix our attention. Would you circle that? Fix our attention. It means focus on what's going to last forever, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. What can be seen only lasts for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. We've got to decide. We've got to decide, am I going to build my life on the acquisition of things or relationships with people? Am I going to focus on riches or relationships? I've got a choice to make because the world is going to tell you the exact opposite of, of everything we've talked about today. Before we can move to these other laws of financial freedom, we've got to settle the issue and the law of contentment in our life. You may have a lot to live on. 
Do you have anything to live for? Do you have a relationship, a relationship with God? The secret of contentment is finding my satisfaction not in what I have, but in whose I am. You find it in Christ. You find it in Jesus. This is one of my favorite verses. But as for me, my contentment is not in wealth, but in seeing you and knowing all is well between us. And when I awake in heaven one day, I will be fully satisfied, for I will see you face to face. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. If you don't get anything else out of today, get this. Did you know that everything, everything can be right between you and God? You might have walked in here with something separating you from God, with something between you and God. But you can leave here today with everything right between you and God. In fact, that's what righteousness is. You might have heard the term righteousness. It means a right standing between me and God. It means everything is right between me and God. And the Bible shows us that we can have the righteousness of Christ, meaning we could have the same standing with God that his son Jesus has with him. That's amazing. You know, your sin might be separating you from God right now, leaving you spiritually dead. God tells us the wages of sin is death. But you can be content in the cross. If you don't get this type of contentment down, everything else we talked about today really won't mean a thing. Some of you are trying to work. You feel like you have to earn your salvation. But we can be content with the perfect life Jesus lived, his suffering of death and his rising from the grave. It's more than we could ever do. It's more than enough. God is inviting you today to to believe today that Jesus suffered your death for you, was put in your grave, and the same power that resurrected him from the dead can raise you from the dead. And accepting that and releasing control of your life, everything can be right between you and God. Wouldn't that be a relief to know, to really know, everything is right between me and God? Let's pray together. God, thank you for making the righteousness of Christ available to us. Such a powerful act of grace. And we need your help. We need your help with contentment. We need your help with money. We recognize today that that you are the only one who truly provides for us, and you know what's best for us. Help us to surrender to you. Help us to stop comparing. Help us to enjoy what we have, to recognize what life is truly about, and to focus on what will last forever. Thank you for doing such a mighty work on the cross that we can be content and confident that your grace extends to every need we have. We want to be more grateful. We want to be more thankful every day. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.